to go. Okay, fantastic. Um, I thought today I would um, start the session with a little anecdote. Um, as our last uh, week's speaker, Katie Fitzgerald, and today's uh, speaker, Ian McCormick, I met both of them in uh, St. Petersburg at the ISYT conference in 2018. And back then, I remember that Ian was just about to finish his PhD. He was clean shaven back then. And I think he was a bit on the verge of uh, going a bit uh, mad. He was just like, let us all be over with. And now, skipping forward two years later, PhD submitted. Um, one of his supervisors is also attending the talk. So probably seems to be uh, quite a success. And also this uh, coming months, we will hear more about or read more about it in uh, a few subsequent articles that Ian's going to publish. And uh, one of these articles, which is still in draft form, will be uh, titled The Mortality of the Dalai Lama and its Scriptural Sources, a study in Tibetan Buddhist political theology, which he will talk about today. Um, yeah, right now he's uh, having his postdoctorate uh, in Berkeley, if I'm right. Yes, yes. And until everything is back to normal, he is in lockdown in beautiful Florida. And well, that's that's me, Ian. Take it away. Uh, yeah, hello to everybody. Thanks, Daniel, uh, so much for putting this together. Um, and thank you to all of you for coming. This is a really deep and robust audience. I don't think I've ever talked to this many Tibetan studies people at one time. Um, so I don't know if it makes it easier or stranger to do it over a video screen. Uh, I apologize, my laptop is a little bit on the low-tech side. Um, and, and there are a couple of kind of specific things about this particular talk that are, um, I, I should just kind of give these caveats in advance. Um, I was really grateful that Daniel reached out to me when he did because uh, I've been working on this article for um, really since January and in another sense it, it goes all the way back to my dissertation and it's kind of an elaboration of stuff I first picked up there. Um, but for reasons I'll explain in a second, it's, it's actually a, a, like a two-part article and, and the first part is done and, and kind of in the machinery at this point and this is the second half of it. Um, so for one thing it's it's really quite, it's, it's uh, rough around the edges and a little bit on the long side. So I'm, I'm going to try to jump back and forth between the, my draft and um, um, speaking more extemporaneously, but I'll, I'll try my best to kind of keep it at 40 minutes and I'll, I might have to jump over some sections here and there. And secondarily, being the, the basically the second half of a two-part study of uh, the Desi's arguments about the fifth Dalai Lama, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of bracket the first half of that and I'll, I'll give you a, a kind of an on-ramp into, into what I'm talking about but it's going to be a little bit of a steep on-ramp because I'm sort of dropping you in media race and talking about this, the second part of a, of a kind of a, like a one-two punch that he gives, one, one half being about divinity and the second half being about the Dalai Lama's mortality. And it's really the mortality I want to talk about because, well, I'm still working on it at the moment and it's, uh, I'm beating my head against it a little bit. So it's a, a perfect opportunity for me to show you exactly what he's saying and why I think it's so interesting. So... Because this is a, I'm, I'm going to jump my screen over here to uh, um, PowerPoint. Um, given the video nature of this talk, I'm, I'm going to talk over the PowerPoint. And instead of just kind of an audiovisual supplement, I actually deposited quite a bit of text in this slideshow. And, and uh, at times, it's just going to kind of map what I'm, I'm talking about myself. Um, and partly I'm doing this because I have the understanding that, that this is being recorded and, and therefore if, if I jump over something really quickly or you don't have time to kind of take in everything I'm saying at once, um, you can go back later and pause it and, and take another look at it. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to take advantage of that to sort of get away with saying more than I really have time to say. Um, okay, so let's, let's just jump right in here. Um, how do I... And uh, There we go. Okay, so just some basic uh, context for this talk. Uh, as most of you, I'm sure, are aware, the, the fifth Dalai Lama, Ngan Lo Sang Gyatso, was the inaugural ruler of the Central Tibetan State, founded in 1642. And like other rulers across Asia, he assumed a royal persona defined in Buddhist terms, here refracted by the particulars of Tibet's own history, institutions, and doctrines. Now, of course, the basis for the Dalai Lama's kingship was his identification with Avalokiteshvara who had long-standing associations with past Tibetan rulers and was the motive force in national narratives about the genesis and salvation of the Tibetan people. 
So building on in these inherited connections to Avalokiteshvara, over the next half century, a discourse of divine kingship developed around the fifth Dalai Lama, in large part through his own efforts. But nowhere did it attain more elaborate and manifest expression than at the hands of the Desi Sangha Gyatso, his pupil, lieutenant, and successor in power. In the aftermath of the Dalai Lama's death, the Desi wove together various ideas about the Dalai Lama into a single vast tapestry. He combined buddhological doctrines with cosmological frameworks, historical narrative, genealogy, and prophecy, promoting an official portrait of the Dalai Lama as both Buddha, Bodhisattva, reborn human being, and religious ruler of Tibet. Now, for the Dalai Lama, the, for the Desi, the Dalai Lama's identity, being both Avalokiteshvara and Tibet's king, was a complex phenomenon, uh, rather than a simple equation between the god on one side and the ruler on the other. In the Desi's text, when he represented the Dalai Lama, to speak of the king at all was to speak a long, continuous, cosmo-theological historical narrative, one that began with the unseen, more-than-human forces that stood behind an animated Tibetan kingship, and uh, proceeding through a, a sequence of steps to end on the active and embodied life and death of a human king, which, uh, by nature of being human, was also corrupted and finite. Now, as I mentioned, I, I, I'm developing um, my presentation of this argument in, in two parts. And this is simply because the account that Desi gives is so extensive and, and so um, versed in uh, various bodies of Buddhist thought uh, and collections of texts that um, to really do justice to the depth of his argument and all that he had to say about the Dalai Lama, uh, it, it helps to break it apart and to kind of um, treat separately these two halves of, of this larger spectrum of, of the narrative of the Dalai Lama as Tibet's king. Um, so I devoted the entire article to working out the, um, basically, the argument for divinity. And this has to do pr primarily with uh, um, stitching together a pastiche of different ways of talking about Avalokiteshvara as Buddha, as Bodhisattva, or technically as multiple Bodhisattvas, and uh, then the, the various uh, ways that those Bodhisattvas engage with the human world through projections and rebirths. Uh, so now we turn to the second half of this, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, this is something I'm, I'm kind of a work in progress at the moment. And these are the Desi's arguments about uh, what I will just refer to as, as the mortality of Tibet's king, uh, namely his existence as a, as a living human being who appears to suffer and die. Um, and really everything hinges on what that means to appear to suffer and die. And so the, the discourse in this case is uh, basically taking up various ideas about karma and purification. Um, now, this is one of these slides I'm just going to dump and, and move on very quickly. Um, you can go back over this later, and in the q and I'm happy to get into some of the details. But just to give you a sense, these are the, the main uh, texts of the Desis, all written in the 1690s, um, where you, you find uh, in sort of shorter or longer form a version of this narrative of the Dalai Lama as both divine and mortal. Um, and so each text has its own particularities and, and addresses different topical matters, but um, all of them, typically at the beginning of the text, but in various ways, um, reiterate in some form the same argument, both the contents of the argument and the, the uh, kind of the form of how it's put together. So when we talk about mortality, it's, it's really these four texts in particular that you find the most uh, robust versions of this argument. And I'll just say like a couple things about each of these in turn. Um, the Tsokcha Chatri, this is the text that uh, really woke me up to this argument. And I, I dealt with this to some extent in my dissertation. Uh, this is Adesi's instructions for a holiday that he designed uh, as a, a kind of a, a capstone to his larger efforts to purify the, the karma of the fifth Dalai Lama through various works and productions, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, so most of this text is basically how to put together this holiday, but about 20, 25 folios of it is the theory behind it, which it basically means how the Dalai Lama is a bodhisattva and how this bodhisattva also um, appears to grow sick, feel pain, die and require some kind of response uh, on account of the karma that that indicated. Um, the, the, really the, the richest and most uh, textually sourced form of the argument is going to be in this text, the Zomlin Genchik Karchak. Um, and that's, that's what I gave you the outline of uh, as a handout. This is his catalog of the Potala Palace, the Potrang Marpo, and all the chapels and statuary inside, um, centering on the Zomlin Genchik, the stupa that the Dalai Lama's remains were interred in. And um, the entire second chapter of this, which addresses uh, basically the purpose for producing all these works, is itself uh, the argument for the Dalai Lama's divinity and mortality 
over about 60, 65 folios or so, um, 30 of which cover this topic of mortality that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, the the Lhasa Corte um, is a, a slightly shorter text that, that um, recapitulates the same structure of the Zamlingen Sheet Karchak. It, it's set up in 13 sections and um, reiterates a lot of the same arguments in, in greatly condensed form. And then it goes on to talk about the, the, the various core, the, the, the bar core and the link core and so forth, uh, circumambulation routes around Lhasa. And then probably the most accessible version of this is the Baidu Serpo, um, which I think is a pretty well-known text and, and includes a long appendix on the fifth Dalai Lama that's structured around uh, the rubric of, of the sort of 12 deeds of the life of a Buddha. Um, and so this is prefaced with a long discussion of, of the, this question of divinity, of, of who and what Avalokiteshvara is. And when you get to the 12th of those 12 deeds, the kind of final act of the Dalai Lama's life, that's where he inserts uh, um, a version of this argument about mortality. So I'm, I'm going to be providing quotes from these texts uh, throughout what I talk about here. So if I could um, basically summarize the overall thesis in, in the broadest possible strokes, it would go something like this. Um, it starts from the, the claim that, that Avalokiteshvara is in fact already a Buddha. Um, he, he's already attained Buddhahood. And, and the Desi meant that both in, in a kind of absolute sense, it's, it's where he typically starts. Um, for instance, he'll say something like, a, Ye ne sange zimpa, that he's always already um, sort of primordially, primordially already become a Buddha, um, possessed of all the four kayas of a Buddha. Um, but typically, he focused more on the fact that even historically, um, albeit very, very long ago, uh, 991 Mahakalpas ago, um, he also, Avalokiteshvara also uh, basically became a, a Samyaksam Buddha. And that's, that's a, an idea that he has basically um, derived from uh, one of the past life stories of Songsen Gampo that's found in the Mani Kambu. And uh, one of the consequences of, and uh, so then it's only secondary that this, uh, this being who already became a Buddha then um, kind of provisionally uh, readapted bodhisattva forms, one of them being uh, the Mahakarnika Avalokiteshvara, who uh, took on an 11 headed form and, and uh, went to Potala and then started to act upon Jambudvipa in Tibet. All that is kind of secondary to this prior Buddhahood. And so one of the corollaries of this is, is that it um, basically bifurcates Avalokiteshvara's role and allows Avalokiteshvara to um, kind of cover Tibetan kingship both in a direct and an indirect fashion. Um, so in one sense, the Desi was really arguing that every past Tibetan king, all 46, according to the formulation that he uses, was Avalokiteshvara. And the, the theological basis for this is in the, is in the Kadam Lake Bomb, actually one of, the, one of the stories in the Kadam Lake Bomb. And then a narrower subset of that is what we would call the direct reverse of Avalokiteshvara, Kwa Bodhisattva. And that's the, this is the kind of familiar list that you'll find um, in some of the Desi's texts. And he counted 36 lives outside of Tibet, uh, 34 of them basically coming out of the, the Kadam Lake Bomb, maybe 33, I forget. Um, then in Tibet, you have uh, this formulation of 10 of the Pergyal kings and then seven Panditas and Siddhas after that. Um, and those seven Panditas and Siddhas are basically a combination of uh, a series of four um, uh, projections of Tri Songdetsen that are all um, sort of based on readings of, of basically prophecies in the Katandenga. Uh, that, so that's Nyangral Nimu Aser, Guru Chowang, uh, the, the Ngari Panchen, Pema Wangyal, and the Ongbo um, De Tashi Tokyal. Um, so that, that's a formulation that actually antedates the Dalai Lama, and he was slotted in as the fifth of those five projections of Tri Songditsen. And then you add to that uh, Pakpa and Jomdun, and then uh, somebody named Pema Vajra, who was uh, basically dreamed about by the third Dalai Lama, and that's how you get seven. And then this would be followed in turn by seven consecutive Dalai Lamas. Um, this is a, a really common formulation in this period that there would be uh, kind of an uninterrupted series of, of um, dramatic displays in the, in the robes of a monk. Uh, this is something that uh, Per Sorensen has published on already, an uh, idea you find a lot in the Desi's texts. So all that I'm basically going to bracket and, and just remember in the back of your head that um, sort of behind the embodied life of the fifth Dalai Lama as a human being is this um, kind of large apparatus of divinity, uh, starting with Buddhahood in its most absolute sense and, and uh, moving up to the projected active work of bodhisattvas. Now, the argument for mortality basically um, sets up a kind of a dialectic uh, thesis and antithesis where uh, the Desi says, well, given that divinity, um, as everybody knows, perfected beings are essentially by definition incapable of bearing karma. Um, the very, what it means to sort of attain that state is to have uprooted one's um, 
the causes of, of one's uh, birth and aging and sickness and death. And, and therefore, one only takes birth and, and appears to die uh, as a kind of a willful act. Nevertheless, he insisted, even Buddhas and Bodhisattvas still exhibit signs of suffering. And he meant that in a realistic way, um, not just as a mere appearance, but as something that um, had some kind of, uh, kind of ontological purchase in the world, and at least to the extent that it demanded some response on the part of the state. And the key term he used to explain this was this term residual karma or legi phagma, um, the, the, the apparent suffering of embodied deities, namely the fifth Dalai Lama, was proof that they still had legi phagma or le leftovers of their karma yet to be purified. And that's an ongoing process. So that's what I'm going to try to, I'll step you through the Desi's argument of how he basically puts together this claim. But first, let me just show you how he says this himself. And this is... So these are ideas that are reiterated throughout his corpus, but um, usually it takes him 10, 15 folios to, to put it all together, and it's easy to lose the thread of the argument in the meantime. Occasionally, he, he um, says everything in one place, and this is a good example of that. So this is from the Tsokja Chatrik, and I'll just read this. This great being is essentially at a level of perfection equivalent to all Buddhas. However, apart from that, as he appears before others, in the purview of those he's to tame as the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, he puts on performances that accord with whomever he is taming. For the sake of beings here in Tibet, among whom the five forms of degeneracy are rampant, he has assumed the form of an intentionally reborn projection as the Dalai Lama in the garb of a renunciate king. So that's basically the divinity side of the equation. Uh, and I'm happy to clarify, there's a lot of technical terminology there that, that um, has a kind of meaning behind it, which I can clarify in the Q&A if you're interested. So this brings us to the second half. And by the way, and as you can see, if you're following along in the Tibetan, this is basically one long sentence. It, I've broken it apart just to make it easier to understand, but this flows as, as like one coherent idea. And so he says, as such, insofar as all great aryas have utterly relinquished the causes of affliction, therefore their effects like birth, aging, illness, and death do not obtain. And acts of accumulation and purification are therefore unnecessary. Nevertheless, in the indirect sense, in the Nayartha sense, as was the case for our own Buddha Shakyamuni, who gave predictions about his own residual karma in the Vinaya Vaisajavastu and proclaimed as much in scriptures like the Ratnakuta collection, it is taught that there may be some quantity of residual karma that still requires purification. So, um, the Dalai Lama is a deity who has utterly relinquished all causes of suffering, and uh, in, there's no sense in which any kind of karmic purification is necessary. However, at the same time, it absolutely is necessary, and there is some residual karma that still requires purification. So here's just another quick example. This is, this is how the Desi, uh, this is like the topic statement of his entire discussion of this issue in the Zamling Genshi Karchak. This sort of supreme Arya Avalokiteshvara who intentionally comes into the world on behalf of living beings and who has assumed the persona of a renunciate king as the fifth Dalai Lama, in the true sense lacks any karmic obscurations that are yet to be cleansed. However, it is explained in many sutras and tantras, basically he's saying, I'm going to now lay out all the sources where this is talked about. It is still explained that they will still purify minor things, for instance, by physical ailments like headaches or limb and joint pain, even bad dreams. So, so this is basically how he sets up, this is like the hinge between the two sides of his argument. Um, um, and like I said, it's kind of a punch-counterpunch where he, he um, advances a, a very um, kind of well-sourced and, and deep series of claims about the perfection standing behind the Dalai Lama, and then uh, rolls it all back again and says, actually, it's entirely the opposite. Um, he absolutely still needs purification. And so... Um, what I'm going to do now is basically um, first give you a little bit of historical context uh, as to what the Desi was up to in these two decades at the end of the 17th century. And that's both for clarification and just simply um, also because it, it directly uh, relates to the decisions he made about how to articulate the Dalai Lama's mortality. And then I'm going to step you through this three, there's three parts of his argument for um, basically this claim that purification is still necessary. Um, he, he kind of brings together three different ways of talking about karma. And I'll, I'll just talk a little about each of those in turn. And so for me, just to step back and, and explain some of the stakes of this for me, obviously the, the primary objective is just to shed some light on, on this uh, really rich body of materials that talk about uh, the fifth Dalai Lama as Tibet's ruler and as embodiment of Avalokiteshvara. 
um, in ways that can, I think, add to our general understanding of, of this central Tibetan state. Um, to to um, give some background to some of the works that they performed and to try to start to do the work of tying um, this kind of ideological legacy into the 18th century and beyond. Um, secondarily, I'm interested in in trying to make a case that that um, basically the, the question of kingship for the Desi was an intellectual and a practical concern, uh, not just a means to other ends. Um, and what I mean by that is simply that um, the very presence of, of this kind of level of detail in his argument for me raises questions that um, are kind of insufficiently addressed by taking an instrumental or a functionalist approach to the fact of divine kingship. Uh, in other words, it's one thing to say that the ruler is a deity, but, but it raises this question of, well, why did he do it this way? Um, why did he put together this constellation of texts the way he did? Um, what was he actually trying to say uh, by, by um, why did he devote so much effort and attention and kind of intellectual energy to, to stitching together the case in the way that he did. So it's really the meaning and the particularity of the case that, that has, has kind of uh, transfixed me. And so in reviewing these sources, I, I kind of want to make the case, this is something I, I'll try to get to in the end of the talk if there's time. Uh, I want to make a case for reading the Desi as a theorist of Buddhist kingship. Um, and what I mean is that it, it, it's, it's of course true that he um, devoted much of his energy to promoting the image of the king. Um, and um, kind of embellishing and elaborating and, and um, speaking on behalf of the authority of the king. But in the process, he also availed himself of the, the rich intellectual resources of the Buddhist tradition in order to think in creative ways about the very possibility of royal authority, um, about the very question of, of what it means that a king is both himself and more than himself at the same time. And for me, that's a really fascinating question because it's, it's kind of a perennial issue, the duality of kingship. Um, it's very well known from the, from the uh, European case, of course, um, but it's a great object of interest in, in anthropological literature as well. Um, and one finds instances of dual kingship in, in many manifestations across the world. And um, it's, it's still kind of a theoretical question today that, that um, we find various articulations of. And I see the Desi as in, in his own way speaking uh, in a Buddhist way to those uh, theoretical conversations about kingship, that he was trying to clarify um, the, the general problem at stake in even talking about the king or talking about uh, the authority wielded by the king is, is something that's both um, more than human and, and nothing other than human at the same time. Um, so that's, that's kind of a personal interest of mine, and I see the destiny as a good interlocutor in that point. So um, with that being said, let me... Uh, step you through some of the kind of historical background here. And again, I'll, I'll basically bracket the deeper history of the, of the links between Avalokiteshvara and the Dalai Lama, um, which are well known from a lot of other scholarship, um, including by many people who are um, privy to this conversation today. Um, so I'll just take up uh, the picture where it sort of enters, where the Desi enters the picture in, in roughly seven, 1679. So the Desi, um, as, as a ruler who was both uh, ruling and writing in the interregnum uh, between the death of the fifth Dalai Lama and the ascent of the sixth Dalai Lama, um, you could say that he faced two connected tasks, one being to promulgate the official narrative of the Dalai Lama and the other to come to terms somehow with his decline in death. Now, in his writings, the Desi patterned that death after uh, the Buddha Shakyamuni's Parinirvana. And this is a political statement as much as a theological one. And what I mean by that is that um, it's not just that uh, the Desi sort of put forward the Buddha Shakyamuni as, as kind of the archetypal model for um, conceiving of the, the sort of dual nature of a divinity who lives and dies, and therefore as a model for how to understand the Dalai Lama's own um, sort of decision to end his life. But equally, at the same time, it was a model for the transfer of authority that occurred uh, from the fifth Dalai Lama to the Desi. Um, and so, so the, basically, the Desi drew a parallel between um, for instance, if you look at the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, there's um, Shakyamuni um, anticipating his own demise, transfers authority or responsibility for his teachings to his disciple Mahakashipa and says, uh, you will become the, the um, he says, you will become the ground and the support on which these teachings will flourish. And the Desi said, that's exactly what's happening again here, that the Dalai Lama is um, sort of bequeathing upon me responsibility for the Tibetan government. Um, so in a sense that he, he saw a direct kind of a, a morphological equivalency between the Buddha's bequeathal of his religion to his disciples in anticipation of death and the Dalai Lama's um, sort of transfer of political authority 
over both administrative sides of government to the Desi in anticipation of his own death. So of course, this has a lot of hindsight in it. This is the Desi writing in like the 1690s, um, saying that it was clear to him that the Dalai Lama knew he was going to die and um, mirrored Shakyamuni Buddha by passing on political authority to the Desi. So upon receiving his mandate in 1679, the Desi then ruled more or less single-handedly over the last two decades of the 17th century. And as is well known, he was a prolific author, not only wrote uh, field-changing works on astronomy and medicine, but he also commented extensively in the Dalai Lama, including on the circumstances of his decline and death. Among other things, he noted the debilitating pain in his extremities and joints that had sporadically afflicted the Dalai Lama over the last decade of his life, calling for bouts of convalescence, uh, medical treatments, and longevity rituals, and also the, the Dalai Lama's deathbed instructions, including the uh, instruction to conceal his death, um, the circumstances of his last meditation, uh, his comportment at the moment of departure, and all the attendant signs and omens. So um, the fact that this death was kept a secret is also uh, very well known. Um, the Desi, Desi does give some details about uh, what took place. Uh, you know, so he, they, they always allege that the Dalai Lama was the one who instructed them to do so, um, but sort of rather awkwardly, nobody ever thought to ask her how long they should do this. So while the Dalai Lama was in his tukdam, they actually, the Desi and the other confidants, um, picked four possible options and then performed a divination to decide what to do. And the way the decision came down was to wait until the uh, enthronement of the, of the next Dalai Lama. Now, in his text, I'll just add as a kind of parenthetical, um, in some of his texts, the Desi says that actually he was really thinking of a 12-year interval or one full cycle of years. And he, he tried to give a precedent for this in stories of Tri Songgitsen and his son Mune Tsempo as, as a kind of a model for um, sort of keeping secret the death of one king over a certain period of time. Um, and he noted basically that by, by 1694, people were already starting to get word of this news. And so this was his way of justifying some of the major acts that he took uh, starting around 1694 including implementing the Tsukchichemo holiday, um, that, that this was in some ways the kind of formal um, culmination of, of keeping the secret. Although, of course, as is well known, it, it's really only in 1696 and 1697 that he had to officially address this issue. Um, so I, I can't really get into that more here, unfortunately. Um, what I really want to do is go back and, and um, back to April 1682 and, and point out that um, really... Um, as soon as the Dalai Lama entered his final meditation, they launched a practical program for dealing with his death. Uh, and this included uh, a series of responses that included prayers, uh, rites, and sponsored offerings at various sites. Now, of course, in the beginning, the, the need to keep this secret uh, drastically limited the size and the scope of what they performed. Uh, this is something that Desi mentions a lot in his texts. Um, and they, they sort of hid the fact that they were performing rites for a, a dead person by uh, insisting that, that these were um, basically pujas on behalf of somebody who was uh, still alive. Nevertheless, the Desi kept accounts of what they were up to in all these intervening years and how much it cost um, to um, sort of undertake this overall effort to do right by the deceased. And this included not just uh, ritual services, but also material productions, especially texts and statues. So just to give you an example, um, from the period 1682 to 1693, um, the, the sum total of everything that they did on behalf of the fifth Dalai Lama was just about, it was about 950,000 uh, song of silver. And um, by the valuation of, of one, the silver song is equal to um, 18 kel by the grain standard. So that's roughly 17 million kel equivalent of grain. Um, and for the sake of comparison, um, the, the laborers who were constructing the Potala Palace um, were basically divided into different uh, artisans' guilds. And um, the, the sort of supervisors or headmen of each of those groups, so the carpenters or the coppersmiths or the stonemasons, they had a monthly allotment of about six to 10 cal of grain per month. And that's, so that's for the bosses in charge. Everybody else got less. Um, so not only um, is this a pretty extravagant expense, but actually what they did after the fact, uh, starting in 1694, was even more extravagant than that. And the central contributions were the Zamlingenchik stupa uh, that was built inside the reconstructed Potala Palace and enshrined the fifth Dalai Lama's remains, and the Tsokchichemo, the Great Worship Assembly holiday, which was uh, effectively a, a giant act of puja uh, to worship the Dalai Lama and purify his karma. And so the, the stupa alone cost another million song right off the bat. And then when you add up all the other expenses, it goes way higher. Um, 
just a quick audio visual or a quick visual interlude here. Um, just this is a really wonderful uh, mural from inside the Potala Palace. This is the Tokjuchemo holiday. Um, and kind of in, in a sort of hypothetical, so this is the, the event that took place on the last day of a, of a week-long holiday where there was a procession of monks um, starting from the, the uh, Jokong and then uh, basically circling all the way around Lhasa out to the Potala where they uh, would kind of decant for the day and perform rituals and then uh, back by way of Ramoche and ending at the Jokong again. So, so this kind of envisions, the, you can see the end of the parade is just coming out of the, of the courtyard, the Sungcharawa, and the banners at the front have made it more or less all the way back again. Um, this would have taken about a thousand people to perform. Um, and, and this is a little bit of a digression. I, I shouldn't waste time on this, but since given the context of this talk, I think it's nice to just show that uh, the Pitt Rivers Museum has some really wonderful photos of of performances of this exact ceremony in the uh, 20th century, um, both in the Chapman, this Frederick Spencer Chapman photographs and uh, Hugh Richardson's photographs as well. And you can actually um, pretty easily match up parts of the photographs with parts of this uh, mural from roughly 1695. So here you have the drummers who were uh, in the vanguard of the procession. Um, here you have the banners. Um, basically, uh, I think there were 15 people holding each of five colors of different banners. Um, this is the very end of the procession where you have these great masked, um, these are the four guardian kings and the, and the 12 Yaksha generals from the, um, the um, Baisaja Guru Sutra, I believe. And um, here's my favorite. This is, uh, there, there's several places where the, 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 the procession of monks is basically a, a kind of a, amalgamation of different ritual systems from various bodies of texts and several of them called for an elephant, uh, which I, I believe in Odessi's time they used puppets or paper mache. Um, but the, the, in the 20th century, the Dalai Lama actually had an elephant that was a gift from the Maharaja. Um, and so here's a great photograph where you can actually see the ele elephant in the ceremony. So there are a lot more photos of this in the Oxford collection, uh, which are really, uh, really interesting photographs. Um, and here, this is just a rare image from the murals in the Potala. This is an image where you can see the Potong Marpo still in construction. Um, with, you almost always see it in its completed form. Um, so it's, it's very hard to find images of what the palace looked like beforehand. Um, and, and you can see here's the roof of the Pakpa Lakang, which would have been the original uh, kind of cresting element of the palace with the Pakpa Lokeshwara statue inside. And uh, ultimately, with the Red Palace, the, the fifth Dalai Lama's tomb would, would have its own roof right here. And we can actually date this pretty well because uh, you see here there's a there's an incident where somebody dropped a rock and it and it killed a guy fell on his head, um, and that happened in in uh, September 1692. So this is roughly how far along they were in September of 1692. Okay, so now back to my blocks of text. Now the reason I've gone through all this um, historical material is is that it really has a, a crucial lesson for our purposes of thinking about the theoretical side of this discussion. And that's that the Desi justified this entire cornucopia of productions as a necessary means of dealing with the Dalai Lama's death. In Buddhist parlance, their combined function was the purification of his karmic obscurations. All of these large-scale works and all the accompanying objects that were constructed, uh, such as statues, texts, scrolls, murals, chapels, ritual implements, sponsored rites, and so on, comprise one monumental gesture of worship for the sake of the departed ruler. Uh, so to put this another way, the state was pouring its resources into forms of public participation in the fate of the king. The Desi was making a strong case that the Dalai Lama's divinity in no way negated the felt reality of his suffering and death, nor the accompanying obligation to recognize that death and ensure Avalokiteshvara's continuing attention to Tibet through petitions, praises, and offerings. Such as to acknowledge that the king's human life was something real, or at least as real as the responses it demanded, which employed physical bodies and tangible things erected lasting edifices of brick and stone, and expended staggering quantities of gold and grain. Uh, but it bears repeating that this, this uh, forthright investment in the Dalai Lama's identity as a human being runs directly counter to the bedrock assertion that the king is a god. The state's efforts to elevate the ruler precipitated a seemingly intractable conflict between theory and practice. In other words, Insofar as the king was really a god, then no responses ought to have been necessary at all. But how, in that case, was that higher power ever to become visible? After all, it's precisely through discourse, monument, and spectacle that royal superiority manifests itself, as might, 
wealth, beneficence, grandeur, erudition, and so on. And there's the reverse problem too. If these lavish contributions by state and society, and more poignantly, the Dalai Lama's own personal suffering and death, if these were to have any meaning and purpose, then in what sense could this king still be a god? So this, in a nutshell, is the, the um, political theological problem that the Desi confronted. Uh, given the cosmic agency standing behind both crown and king, in what sense could the human Dalai Lama also grow old, suffer, and die? Um, in specific terms, this was a question of karma. How is it that a being who is beyond karma can still exhibit all the telltale signs of karma? And uh, as a kind of a corollary, what ought to be done about it? What sort of response was necessary? Now, to generalize the point, uh, there's kind of a larger question behind this. How is it that true divinity and apparent mortality relate to one another, such that they qualify the same being without contradiction, but also without obscuring or assimilating one another in the process? And what I mean by that is that um, the sort of fundamental problem of the duality of kingship is, is as I mentioned, a perennial problem. And, and there's many ways of, of articulating and resolving that problem. And many such uh, solutions, so to speak, involve essentially redescribing one side of this issue in the terms of the other. Uh, and that involves both uh, buddhological um, e explanations, for instance, that would take the uh, incarnate form of the deity and, and present it as essentially the willful self-presentation of divinity. Uh, in other words, resolving mortality back into divinity. Uh, most um, kind of contemporary critical academic theories take the opposite approach and uh, basically explain divinity as a kind of a man-made production, uh, whether through a, a kind of a critique of religion or through a, a sort of a sociological functionalism, um, taking it as basically a, a kind of a mask for other desires or as, a, as just a, a natural reflex of society becoming aware of itself. Now, what's interesting about the Desi for me is that um, he actually took a, a, a more difficult and more challenging and for that reason, more interesting route, which was to try to uphold the, uh, the truth of both sides of this duality. Um, th that he sought the terms to, to articulate the mutual dependence and the mutual untranslatability of both sides of dual kingship. And I, I mean simply that neither can ultimately be explained entirely in the terms of the other. So he affirmed on one hand that divinity does exceed and then enter into and act meaningfully upon human life. And this is the ultimate source of, of the king's authority. But at the same time, he tried to argue the opposite, that the human condition itself poses an absolute constraint. And this is no minor concession from a Buddhist perspective, because it essentially means that everybody, up to and including a Buddha, can justifiably suffer, not just as a mere appearance, but in a meaningful way. So, so that's what he was trying to, um, this is the, how he phrased the problem, and, and this is how he tried to come to terms with um, the Dalai Lama being Avalokiteshvara and the Dalai Lama being somebody who dies, and whose death calls for some response on the part of the state. And so he did this, so this is actually what the bulk of my paper is addressing. He did this by, by putting together three separate strains of discourse. And as a kind of a shorthand, you can think of these as basically uh, a Mahayana strain of discourse, uh, tantric strand, and then one that came out of narrative literature about the Buddha Shakyamuni. And so let me just summarize each of these quickly in turn. So the first is what I would refer to as disproportionate purification. And the basic idea here is, is that um, certain beings, at least, have uh, the means to take retributions at their own, their owed on account of past evil, and drastically reduce um, the, the ways that those evils are uh, retributed. Um, it's, it's kind of like putting your thumb on the karmic scales. And the catchphrase of this is this notion of purification by headache. Uh, and so this is a phrase that's kind of threaded um, surreptitiously through all kinds of uh, Mahayana texts and treatises. And Desi used it as a way to stitch together various claims. But the basic idea is um, advanced beings can, can take uh, lifetimes that they're owed in hells and, and vaporize them instantaneously with something as simple as a headache. And so for him, this, of course, the Dalai Lama had joint pain and headaches and so forth. And, and this could then therefore double as a sort of a sign of one being an advanced being. That this is precisely the sort of thing that, that bodhisattvas do. They, they um, instead of going to hell, they have headaches. Um, the second strain of discourse is the tantric one. And this has to do with the kind of common refrain that the result is really the ground. And uh, purified states are actually prior to the ostensibly purificatory practices that are supposed to bring them about. Um, 
so uh, the, he, he again phrased this in terms of karma by essentially saying that um, truthfully speaking, the, the ground is actually already karmically complete. The, the accumulations are already perfected and, the, uh, and all obscurations are already purified. Um, but for the Desi specifically, he took this as implying that um, there's ways of describing advanced beings who are on the boomies um, at a very advanced stage of practice, but who still in justifiable ways can experience uh, real pain and pleasure. And now the third strand of this argument is, is for me the most interesting one, and this is the doctrine of karma avashesha or, or legi hatma. Um, and, and this, in effect, is a kind of a synthesis of both of the prior two things. And it, 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 takes, it says that, that Buddhas and other advanced beings, including bodhisattvas and arhats and even uh, other deities, um, there's a certain way that they can experience suffering that, that is attributable to their own karma, uh, which is a very uh, heterodox thing to say. But it only occurs after their karma has already ripened, which is a very paradoxical thing to say. Um, that, that it's precisely beings like Shakyamuni who have finished the pro process of ripening their karma, who then appear to suffer in ways that uh, speak to the, the, this kind of echo or after effect or residue of karma. Um, and and it, it has this term, Legi Thakma, which, which uh, is taken from, from narrative literature about the sufferings of the Buddha Shakyamuni, which I'll talk about if I have a little bit of time. And so this is the key term for the Desi because it, um, it kind of holds intention both of those other two pieces. And that's what he really wanted to say about the, the authority of the fifth Dalai Lama, that, um, that it's both already something perfect and it's something that meaningfully uh, exhibits all the signs of being human. So um, I'm really not going to have time, regrettably, to get into this. Um, all I'll say about, I'll, I'll go through these slides just so you can get a sense of some of the text involved. But the only one I'll point out for this first body of discourse on disproportionate purification the core of the Desi's argument was this text, the Chatur Dharma Nirdesha Sutra, or the, the Discourse on the Four Powers, um, which spelled out a um, sort of four purificatory remedies that bodhisattvas could, could uh, apply in order to, as I said, um, drastically mitigate the uh, retribution that they're owed due to their past karma. And this itself became the source of a, a kind of a line of commentary um, that you see in the, in the Lamran Chemmo of Tsongkhapa, and then Tsongkhapa in turn uh, draws on very long discussions of this possibility of, of disproportionate purification in the Tarkajvala of Bhaviveka and in the uh, Abhismaya Lankara Aloka of Haribhadra. Um, and so those are really fascinating discussions that I could give a whole talk on just those. Um, but you should just know this is the, the kind of core source for the Desi's argument. And, and this doctrine also featured um, prominently in the Shiksha Samucheya of, of Shanti Deva and with kind of echoes in the Bodhicharya Avatara as well. And uh, uh, I'm just going to have to skip this. I'm sorry. Um, this, here's, here's the Desi's engagement with the Mahamoksha Sutra, which is another, this is a Chinese sutra on purification. I'll just mention that the, one of the reasons he was so interested in this literature on purification by way of headaches is that um, it gave him a kind of a language for talking about the fifth Dalai Lama's pain. And he also combed through the, um, the kind of secret biography of the fifth Dalai Lama, the Sangwa Gyachen which uh, records all kinds of uh, prophetic visions that the Dalai Lama had undertaken in, uh, throughout his career. And there was one vision in particular that was especially important, uh, really a kind of a week-long retreat that he took in 1659. And in the process, he, had this, uh, he was given this prophecy that he would have to uh, pay karmic retribution for the fact that as a past life, he was a king in, in Benares and, and uh, basically dismembered somebody. And that, that's why he was going to suffer his rheumatism. And so this became important for the, for the Desi to say, um, not only did the, des did the Dalai Lama have uh, serious karma still to pay off, but, but he was also exactly this sort of advanced being described in all these texts who would take um, criminal retributions and, and uh, kind of downgrade them to mere aches and pains. Um, now, the discourse on prior perfection, I think I'm just going to skip. Um, the key source here, th there's a really fascinating uh, kind of exegesis of a passage from the Kala Chakra, which, which I could talk about. Really bizarre reading that he gave of that. Um, his key source was the Kuya Garba and uh, kind of a series of commentaries to the Kuya Garba by Lalita Vajra, uh, by uh, Jungdun, and especially by Longchenpa and the Chokjum Munsel. And um, this gave him a, a kind of a vocabulary for talking about beings who were very advanced on the Bhumis, who were already innately in a state of primordial purity, but who nevertheless had a kind of a, a adventitious or superficial experiences of purification. Um, 
this is probably the most fascinating part of his argument. Um, he, he, this is kind of a riff he takes on Tonka, on uh, Longchenpa, I mean, and the idea of, of uh, four different types of vidyadara uh, on the Bhumis. And he bifurcated these four types of vidyadara uh, into three of a greater mental capacity who um, basically, once they reach the darshana marga, are, are entirely incapable of experiencing any kind of pleasure or pain. And then there's a fourth type of somebody, basically a, a lochungwa, somebody who's a little less uh, intellectually advanced. Um, and this is somebody referred to as a, as a developed or a matured vidyadara, a namminrigsin. And the desi took this idea to say that these are people who have reached the darshana marga in an irreversible state. Um, and they've um, basically, um, they have no more, they're anashrava, but they, um, they have this lakma tangjepa, this residue left over that they could not fully purify with their yeshe. And so even though they've completely abandoned grasping at the kleshas, which is the cause of their samsaric existence, and even if they, come, they opt not to come back in a second life, still it will sometimes appear that these outflows, which are the source of a physical body, are still present. Uh, this is just like the stench that re uh, remains behind in an empty musk vial. And it's also possible, therefore, that there will be some very minor intimations of pleasure and pain. Um, so again, he, he takes a, a kind of a discourse and, and, and turns it towards his argument, which is a way of saying that that which is already entirely uh, perfected and purified in advance, nevertheless, in a very meaningful sense, exhibits pleasure and pain. Um, uh, Daniel, how am I doing on time here? Uh but let's say uh, four more minutes, it says. Yeah, so. okay. I'll race through the, the karma of Ashesha and then I'll, we'll, we'll go to Q&A and then I can pick up whatever I didn't get to there. Um, so th this is this third strand of his argument, uh, as I mentioned, is a kind of a synthesis of the other two. And for me, this is the most interesting part. Um, this almost gives a precise name to um, the, the kind of political theology that the Desi is trying to advance, um, which is um, holding intention as simultaneously true and mutually dependent both a state of prior perfection and divinity and a, um, a real and not merely apparent subsequent state of conditioned humanity, uh, which um, exhibits karma and calls for a response. And so he found th this language to talk about this in these narratives of the Buddha Shakyamuni suffering. And so this is a very famous body of literature that goes very, very far back in the tradition. And it um, made its way into the Tibetan canon through a variety of sources, one of them being a text called the Anavatathagata. And uh, in, in the Tibetan Mulasarvastavada Vinaya, this is uh, basically um, kind of sandwiched inside the, the Mengiji or the Vaisajavastu, the section on medicine. And it's, it's a, a text in 37 chapters about the, the Buddha and 500 of his arhats um, telling stories to each other about their past evils and their present retributions. And the 37th chapter of this is about the Tathagata, and he gives 10 stories about times that he suffered. So this is a really familiar list. It, you find it in Chinese sources like the Dajer Dulun. You see it in uh, the Mahapadana literature in Pali. Um, you see it in, in uh, Mahayana literature like the Upaya Kalshalya Sutra. And you see it in this, in this uh, Vinaya text, the Anavatapta And the reason that text appealed to the Desi is because it, really it's only in that text that you have this term, Legislagma, that's used to explain what's going on. That, um, so rather than get into this list, these are pretty familiar episodes. Most of them are kind of Devadatta-inspired uh, maladies that the Buddha suffered, uh, stepping on a thorn, having a rock pierce his foot. Um, he was slandered various times, um, and so on and so forth. So I'll, I'll probably end on this slide. And this is just an example of the language of this text. Um, each of these stories that the Buddha tells ends with a formula more or less equivalent to this. So the Buddha, is, imagine he's just told a story about um, some evil that he committed in a past life. In this case, he killed his brother with a rock. And so he ends by saying, it's due to the ripening of that karma or the karma vipaka from when I was that person. For many years, many hundreds, many thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, I cooked in the hell. It is due to nothing. It is due to the residue of nothing other than that evil act. Tenaeva karma avasheshena, or legi flakma dekone. It is due to the, nothing other than the residue of that evil act that I, as a, a tathagata, despite already being awakened, had a sliver of rock pierce my toe. So for the Desi, he really leaned on this fact that um, there's this bifurcation between karma vipaka or karmic ripening, which is uh, prior to uh, one's awakening and perfection, and in a sense participates in bringing it about, and a subsequent provisional karma avashesha, which, which 
by definition occurs after one has already attained this awakened state. And so he goes through a huge body of literature on this um, and, and pulls together all kinds of stories from narrative literature. And effectively to say that, that there are ever so many stories like this which show how karma avishesha was purified in the, in the uh, Drangdun, in the Nayartha sense, which proves that bodhisattvas on the first Pumi and up still have karmic obscurations that are yet to be purified. And then here he is again. Even a Buddha who has abandoned both of the two obscurations without anything remaining may still, in the common indirect sense, have karma avashesha yet to be purified. Um, so I, I'm gonna let me go back to video here. Um, I could go on about this for another hour, but I think uh, I'll wrap up here. And um, essentially, what I do in the rest of the paper is is I I take some of his examples of how he talks about this idea of karma avashesha. Um, and, and try to read it in terms of this underlying political theology, theological problem of, of uh, the kind of duality of kingship, of the king being both an individual and an institution, um, authority being both something that comes from outside of the human realm and something that's necessarily um, active within and conditioned by the human realm. And, and the way he tries to um, not explain one in the other's terms, but to, to, to take on the more difficult task of holding both together and, and explaining how each, in a, in a sense, depends on the other. And just in the most practical sense, this um, basically is a way of knitting together both um, his affirmation of the kind of ideological supports of the kingship of the Dalai Lama and to justify all of the actual active, creative, productive works that he undertook himself as Tibet's ruler, um, all of which, you know, seem to undermine that very fact of divinity by um, calling explicit attention both to the death of the Dalai Lama and to the fact that it's precisely through uh, human activities and the participation of state and society that kingship is itself recognized and affirmed. So, so that's the, the kind of arc of my paper is to, is to carry the, the Dalai Lama's own Buddhist ideas into conversation with um, kind of contemporary discourse on divine kingship, which, which uh, offers its own resolutions of the same problem. Okay, so I'll stop there.